Welcome once again. So glad you're here this morning. For those of you that I have not yet met, obviously I am not Derek. Uh, Derek is this morning preaching at my church, the church that I attend and pastor in San Antonio called Trinity Grace Church. We planted about six months after you guys planted uh, in the area of UTSA there, and we thought it'd be fun to take a break this week uh, in some ways and uh, to do a pulpit swap uh, or a music stand swap. Um, that's what I'm looking at here this morning. Um, but if you've got a Bible, you'll want to open to Luke chapter 19. It's also printed for you on page 8 of your bulletin. One of the things I love about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is how they show the way Jesus interacts with people who would not claim to believe in God, with people who don't follow God's commands in life. Today, we might refer to a person like that as a seeker or an unbeliever. And it's always fascinating and a bit surprising as you look at the Gospels to see how Jesus relates with people like that during his earthly ministry. In fact, one of the main themes that Luke touches on throughout his gospel is Jesus' relationship with sinners. Oftentimes, Luke will use the phrase sinners and tax collectors to refer to the kind of people that Jesus spent time with. Sinners and tax collectors were the kind of people who didn't claim to follow God. They, they were the type of people who the religious would have separated themselves from. They were the type of people that most had given up on as too far gone when it came to the moral mistakes and the choices that they had made in life. Jesus spent so much time with these kind of people, in fact, that he gained a surprising reputation, especially with the religious elite of the day. In Luke chapter 7, we see that people accused Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The passage we're about to read this morning gives us a picture as to why Jesus would spend so much time with these kind of people. It's because it was a major part of his mission to seek and to save the lost. In fact, you could make the case that if Jesus were going to craft a mission statement for his ministry, it could very well have been to seek and to save the lost. This morning, we see Jesus entering the last week of his life on earth, and I wonder if you knew that you had one week left to live, I wonder what would be on your mind. It'd be safe to assume that you'd focus on things that are most important to you, the things that matter most in life. Well, here we have Jesus staring down the last week of life, and he remains focused on what was most important to him seeking and saving the lost. And as you continue to plant this church for New Braunfels, it'd be a good mission to mirror the mission of Jesus. We want to judge our effectiveness by how well we're following Jesus's example and ministry. That's why the core values of Hope Prez, which I've gotten to know over the past year being in relationship with Derek, are so closely tied to what Jesus came to do on earth. So this morning, we're going to look at this passage that highlights the mission of Jesus, and it's good news for us personally because we're constantly falling into sin and constantly need to be, we need to be restored by the friend of sinners. And it's good news for our community because Jesus came to seek and to save those who are searching, those who would claim to be too far gone, those who we would least expect. To see what I mean, you follow along as I read from Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. 
Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Well, this is God's word, and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. I wonder how many of you have ever heard firsthand stories of prisoners of war. I'm a big podcast listener myself, and it seems like over the past few years, I've stumbled upon podcast episodes that depict the hardship and the brave rescue of prisoners of war. Some of you know that the United States military, it has a code of conduct that's expected of its soldiers, specifically for those who get caught behind enemy lines and become POWs. And this code of conduct includes things like never surrendering on your own free will, never giving information that would hurt the United States or its allies, never forgetting the mission of defending freedom as you're behind enemy lines as a prisoner. And I'm always struck when I hear the stories of POWs and how they talk about maintaining hope in the horrible situations they find themselves in. And it almost never fails that the thing that got them through the tortuous days of being behind enemy lines was the fact that they knew that all the resources of the United States government was engaged in the search and rescue operation. What got them through was knowing that someone was looking for them. In fact, one of the things that can be most demoralizing to a POW is giving in to the belief that no one is searching for you. I recently heard of a U.S. intelligence officer who spent 17 years as a prisoner in Cuba. And he said the darkest day of his 17 years in prison was the day that he convinced himself that no one in the U.S. government was doing anything to come and get him. He started to believe that he didn't matter and that no one cared, and it crushed him. Everyone wants to matter enough that if you were lost, someone would drop everything. Someone would launch a massive rescue party that someone would turn over heaven and earth to find you. I remember a few years back, we were at a missions event packing boxes as a family in a huge warehouse on the east side of San Antonio, and we were getting ready to head home as a family and gathering up our three kids, and we realized that we couldn't find Abby, our middle daughter. And after a while, it got everyone's attention. And this was one of those situations where we gave it a few minutes, but after a few minutes, we started to get really worried, and we had literally dozens of people searching the warehouse in the surrounding area for our middle child, little Abby. Everyone basically dropped everything they were doing to search for her, and we finally found her 10 minutes later. She was back in a corner hiding among the boxes. But no one even questioned 
being inconvenienced or having to drop everything because Abby mattered. What parent wouldn't drop everything in order to find a lost child? I mean, it's why we see the signs on the interstates throughout Texas often flashing with amber alerts because when a little child goes missing, they matter. And the resources of the state and their families are dedicated to searching for that child. We see massive resources spent on these searches all the time. You see phone alerts, you see billboards printed, you see mailers mailed across whole regions of the nation, all in an effort to search for what is lost. The horror of a child lost compels a parent to say, I would do anything, I would give up anything to find my child and have them back. It's a horrible thought to stop and think about going missing and not really being missed. To think that you don't matter enough to elicit an all-out effort of time and energy and resources defined. And this is really the point of the incarnation and the gospel message. It's that we have a father who's not going to sit idle while his children are lost. The passage we read this morning is an example of the fact that God will do anything to find his lost children. In fact, you could say that the resources of the kingdom of God are completely behind finding that which is lost. The very fact that you're sitting in this room this morning is an indication that someone is looking for you. This is one of the key truths that distinguishes Christianity from all other world religions. All other world religions, they come and they say, you've got to find God. It's up to you. You search for him and perhaps, just perhaps, maybe you could find him. But Christianity comes and it says, God searches for you. He comes for you. He takes the initiative and he finds you. And so the God of the universe sent his only son into the world, the son of man, came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. And truth be told, whether you're a Christian or a seeker here this morning, we all need to be found. And the good news for us is that Jesus came to earth on a mission to find those who are lost. And we're going to look at this passage under three quick headings this morning. First, the object of Jesus' mission. Second, we're going to spend just a few minutes looking at the order of his mission. And third, the outcome of his mission. So the object, the order, the outcome. First, let's spend just a few minutes considering the object of Jesus' mission. We see the object of his mission at the very beginning of our passage. Jesus is making his way through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. He's about to enter the last week of his life, yet his priorities don't change. He's come to seek and to save sinners right up to the end. And we see some characteristics jump out about Zacchaeus here in our passage. And the one that you likely remember if you went to Sunday school in church is that Zacchaeus is a wee little man. He's short in stature. The passage tells us he can't see over the crowd. But the most important characteristic about Zacchaeus is that no one likes him. No one likes him. He would have been despised and shunned by the entire community. Zacchaeus had no friends because he was a tax collector. Now, I don't think it's ever been popular to be a tax collector, especially during this time of year. In fact, I've never met a little kid when asked, what do you want to do when you grow up? Respond, I want to work for the IRS and collect taxes. That would be strange. Never heard it. But it was even worse in this situation because Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector. He was a tax collector for the enemy, the Roman government. 
They were despised because tax collectors like Zacchaeus were Jewish men who had basically betrayed their own people, turned their back on the Jewish people to work for the Romans, and in in process of doing that, they lined their own pockets. It was a lucrative position that often was obtained by the highest bidder. And Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, which meant that he was in charge of other tax collectors in the region. He was the head of the cartel, so to speak. And one of the attractive things about collecting taxes for Rome in that day and age is that you were encouraged to skim off the top. In fact, that's how you made a living. So let's say Rome wanted to collect a 15% tax on everyone's earning. Well, a tax collector would come along and charge you 25%, send 15% to the government, and then pocket the 10% for himself. And he could do all of this with the backing and authority of the colonial power, which was Rome. And because of this, they were despised. They would have been treated like dirt by the Jewish community. In fact, tax collectors were often excommunicated from the synagogue. They weren't allowed to come to church. They were treated as unclean. They weren't allowed to give testimony in Jewish courts of law. Their disgrace normally extended also to their families. A sense of dirtiness was rubbing off on everyone that they touched. People would have despised Zacchaeus. The people of Jericho would have looked at Zacchaeus, they would have seen his big house and his many servants and his growing wealth and say, that's our money. He's stealing our money. Zacchaeus was betraying his own people to enrich himself and everyone hated him. And along comes Jesus. He comes in to town where there are many fine people, lots of great people likely living in Jericho in this day and age, likely religious leaders and those who would claim to follow God, And Jesus comes and he looks up in a tree at the most hated man in town and he says, I'm spending the day with you. I'm coming to your house for dinner. Jesus invites himself over. And if you think about it, he had to because there was no way that Zacchaeus would ever have considered inviting Jesus. It never would have even entered his mind, so Jesus invites himself And notice what the people of Jericho did. What did they do? Look at verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. They thought, this is terrible. They thought, we're decent people. We're good people. And you come to town and you're going to spend your day with him? It would have been scandalous. Jesus comes into town and with a couple days left to live, he loves the man no one else loves. And it's the pattern we see throughout Jesus' life. He always loves the unwanted. He always gravitates towards those who are unworthy, the outsiders. Think of the Samaritan woman by the well. Think of the prostitute who washes Jesus' feet with her tears. Think of the lepers that he was constantly touching as he made his way across the landscape in the first century. Jesus loved the outsider. Now you may be here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I appreciate what you're saying. I'm just not sure I'm the religious type. Christianity has lots of rules, and I don't really keep many of them. I'm not really sure if I believe. You don't really know what I've done. I'm not really sure I belong in the church. And I think this passage wants to look at us and say this morning that you're exactly the type of person Jesus came for. In fact, if that's you this morning, you need to know that you are tailor-made for Jesus. Jesus didn't come for the pure or the holy or the upright. You know why? Because those people don't exist. 
There's no such thing as a good or holy or pure person. There are only broken people, broken people who have run to Jesus or broken people who haven't done that yet. But that's all there are, broken people in need of rescue. And one of the requirements for being found is to recognize that you're lost. It's only those who are willing to acknowledge just how lost they are that get found by Jesus. Jesus came for you. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, secondly, it's not just the object of the search that gets our attention. There's an order of Jesus' mission we see in this passage. What we see is that Jesus walks into the town of Jericho and what he sees is Zacchaeus up in a tree. And this is strange. He's so eager to get a glimpse of Jesus that he runs ahead of the crowd and he climbs up a sycamore tree. This is interesting, especially given Zacchaeus' social standing. Because grown men, like here in New Braunfels, don't normally climb trees. Children climb trees, not adults. It would have been unsophisticated. It lacked dignity and honor. But Zacchaeus is so curious about Jesus that he doesn't care. And in a sense, he shows what we might call the beginnings of a childlike faith by climbing this tree. Well, Zacchaeus is in the tree and Jesus walks right up to him and looks up in the tree and says this in verse 5. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And you've got to think as you step back out that Zacchaeus likely never heard his name used with such tones of kindness like he did from Jesus. And it may not mean much to us that Jesus was going to be a guest in Zacchaeus' house, but in the culture of the first century, it was very significant to be a guest in someone's home. To enter someone's house, to be a guest, to eat at their table, it signified intimacy with the person that that we don't really understand today. It would have communicated a bond, an affection, a relationship that was felt deeply. Jesus was communicating to this entire hostile crowd that he loved this man. Jesus' actions and behaviors would have been totally unacceptable and even outrageous to these people. Jesus is breaking social customs along with moral and religious laws of the day by entering Zacchaeus' home. And here's what I want us to see the order of what happens in this relationship. Jesus comes and he expresses affection and love and friendship towards Zacchaeus, yet Zacchaeus did not do anything in order to earn that love from Jesus. It was completely unmerited. It's what we'd call grace. The unmerited favor of God towards those who don't deserve it. Zacchaeus was a cheat. He was a robber. He was an extortionist. And Jesus comes, he takes the initiative with Zacchaeus to communicate his love and desire to know him. And notice what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't come up to Zacchaeus and say, stop your cheating. Stop your extortion. Clean up your life. Then maybe I'll consider coming to your home. Then maybe I'll be your friend if you do those things first. No, it's the love of God and his kindness that goes first. And it's this love and kindness that actually transforms Zacchaeus' life. It's remarkable. Jesus loves Zacchaeus before Zacchaeus changes or repents. And here's the truth we see. We don't turn from sin to get God's love. We turn from sin because we've experienced God's love. 
And we're in deep trouble if we ever get that truth backwards. It's always the grace, kindness, and love of God that goes first. It's the thing that has the power to change you. The Bible says that while we were still enemies, he loved us. Luke tells another story earlier in his gospel about a boy who took his dad's money and went far away from home and spent that money on parties and girls and wild living. And then finally, after a while, he decided to stagger back home a failure. But before he could even get home, and read this passage in Luke 15, his dad, who'd been eagerly waiting for his son to return, he sprinted off the porch down the road, embraced his son, and before his son could say anything, before he could start his I'm sorry speech, the father kisses him. The father didn't say, you've made your mistakes, now you're gonna live with them. The father didn't say, what were you thinking? I cannot believe that you embarrassed me like that. You better pay back what you lost. No, he kisses him. That's the beauty of the gospel, that those who have made a mess out of their lives get the kiss of the Father. And in our passage this morning, Zacchaeus is experiencing the kiss of God. Jesus looks at him and tells him that he loves him, that he's his friend, that he's coming to his house today. And it changes Zacchaeus' life. There's a story I recently heard of a church plant in Kansas City. And the story was told by the pastor of this church plant, And at the time, they just had a small group of folks who would gather and pray every Wednesday evening that God would use them to start a new church to bless Kansas City. In one of those meetings, one of the women in that group brought her husband. And this isn't unusual, but it was unusual the reason she brought him. She brought him because, in a sense, she was babysitting him. He was drunk. And she couldn't leave him alone at home with her children. So she brought him to the prayer meeting, and it got even worse when they began to pray because the husband decided that he wanted to pray too. He wasn't a Christian. He didn't grow up in the church, and he was drunk. And so he prayed for 29 minutes, a 29-minute bizarre stream of consciousness rambling that embarrassed his wife to no end. And when he was done, the people of the church welcomed him and asked him to get coffee a few days later uh, by men in the church, and they welcomed him really at his very worst. And in a sense, he was kissed by that group at his very worst. His wife eventually got him into residential rehab in Phoenix, and a few of the men in the church even flew down to be with him in rehab. And the pastor finished the story by saying that this man turned out to be the best officer that the church had ever had, the best leader that the church had ever had. And that's the power of God. That's the kiss of God. The Son of Man comes into the world to find you so that you might know the kiss of God. He came to change you with his love and to bring you home. So we come to our last point and ask, what was the outcome of all of this? How does being found by God impact Zacchaeus? Well, we see in this passage that Jesus meets us where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. He meets us in order to change us. We see that this thief, this extortioner, is completely transformed. He's changed because Jesus brings him into the family of God by his grace and love. Zacchaeus has changed from being a thief and extortioner into being one of the most generous men in all of Jericho, the best church officer, so to speak. 
He's so changed by the love and inclusion of Jesus that he promises to give away half of all that he owns, five times what's required from the Old Testament law. And not only that, whoever or whatever he stole from people, he's going to pay that back 400,000 times. It's just amazing generosity. Zacchaeus is completely changed in this passage by the love of Jesus. His heart explodes with gratitude and generosity because of the relationship with Jesus. Zacchaeus is an example of what, sh- what the rich young ruler a few chapters earlier should have been. He's the one who makes it through the eye of the needle, a rich man who enters God's family because he's found by Jesus. Zacchaeus doesn't care about the fact that he has to give up his wealth because he's found something more valuable in Christ. Zacchaeus is an outcast who's brought back into the true family of God because Jesus came to find him and it changes everything. It's a picture of what Jesus wants to do in our lives this morning. He wants to make us into something far better than we can even imagine. Reminds me of how C.S. Lewis describes this transformation that God wants to bring in his book, Mere Christianity. And he likens you and me to a house that God wants to renew. And Lewis says this, Imagine yourself a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house, and at first perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised, but presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts deeply and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. That's what Jesus wants for us this morning. It's what Zacchaeus experienced when he was found by Jesus, the love and grace of Jesus that completely transforms his life. And it's interesting as you follow along in this story and as it closes, Jesus continues on to his Jerusalem journey while Zacchaeus stays back in Jericho to live out his new life and to establish himself as a loving, generous person right there where he is. But if Zacchaeus had followed Jesus... He would have witnessed a reversal in in a sense. Because it was about a week after this interaction with Zacchaeus that Jesus found himself being treated as a thief and an extortioner. Executed with the criminals. Jesus found himself up on a tree. Crying out to God but hearing nothing in return. Jesus found himself the the object of the crowd's grumbling and derision and hatred, full of shame, with no friends left. This reversal that takes place. And in doing this, Jesus was completing the mission he set out to accomplish, the mission of seeking and saving the lost. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the fact that you are one who came to seek and to save the lost. Thankful for the way that you pursue us. It's not about how hard we pursue you. It's about your pursuit of us and the love that we receive from you. And we pray this morning that as we understand and embrace that love that we've received more deeply, that you would change us from the inside out, that you would renew our hearts, restore our spirits. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.